Hello, and welcome to the ever-so-rare Neil Before Blog interview section. Recently, I was lucky enough to catch up with John Semper Jr., the man responsible for the 90s Spider-Man animated series. We were able to talk about a range of topics, such as his life, the upcoming Cyborg comic series that he is writing for DC, and his crowdfunding campaign for our original series, War of the Rocket Men. Before we get to the interview, here's a brief promotional clip for War of the Rocket Men, featuring the voice of Spider-Man himself, Christopher Daniel Barnes. The year is 1942. My name is Skylar King. My friends call me Sky. I had always wanted to fly. And when World War II began and I enlisted, I saw my chance and trained as a pilot. One night, when I was on a mission to transport a top secret weapon from Washington to New Mexico, I encountered a powerful storm. In the midst of thick clouds, I spotted small, dark shapes, at first streaking toward the plane, but then flying alongside of it. They were men. Flying men. But how could that be? I was shocked by what they were using for propulsion. There were jetpacks strapped to their bodies. I watched in horror as they landed on both wings of the airplane. These flying men appeared to have magnetic boots that clung to the sturdy metal wings of the transport plane. Emblazoned across their helmets were swastikas. These were Hitler's soldiers. I was under attack. An explosion rocked the plane. It took all of my strength to keep her flying steady. I was done for. But suddenly, flying to my rescue were a new group of rocket men, bearing the American flag. And that night, for the first time, I found myself caught in the middle of the War of the Rocket Men. And now that I knew about this incredible, secret war, nothing could keep me away from becoming a rocket man myself. It was everything I'd ever dreamed of, and so much more. Now you can join me on this exciting adventure. The Rocket Men are about to take off. Will you be flying into danger with us? Are you interested yet? Well, let's hear from the man himself. Hi, John. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Craig. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, so, you know, um, Neil Before Blog, this website, it covers a lot of film, TV and comics as well. So um, I guess the first thing is to figure out uh, what you're watching or reading or looking forward to be watching or reading in the near future. Ah, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm looking forward to all the Marvel movies because I enjoy the Marvel movies tremendously. Um, I'm looking forward also to um, the DC movies uh, because I'm currently writing one of the DC characters and my character is scheduled for a movie coming up in a few years. So I'm hoping that the DC movies will continue to be popular. Um, on television, I'm watching these days. I love Grimm, so I'm, I'm always looking forward to that. I love anything by Greg Berlanti, so I'm looking forward to Flash and, and Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, I enjoy those shows. I'm really looking forward to Mr. Robot. I'm loving that show. That show has just completely taken me by surprise. Uh, and everything up until the last episode. The last episode was a bit wonky, but everything prior to that I think was just brilliant. Um, it's, it's an interesting show. Uh, season two, I'm not sure what way they're going to go with it. Yeah, well, that's always the question, isn't it? And that's always a problem. I think... So many of these shows that come on are, are maybe the, a good 20 minutes of, a, of an interesting movie. 
yeah. stretched out <laughs> over, you know, 29 episodes. And yeah. you just, you know, there's really no place for them to go. But that the pilots are usually fun to watch. And the first two episodes are a lot of fun. And Mr. Robot, I thought, was really well done. Yeah, um, yeah. and so that's all I can think of at the moment. I guess there's a new... Uh, Spider-Man animated movie coming up, and I'm curious about that. So that'll be sort of interesting to see. Not tried to get the job? No. No, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, the two guys that are doing that were, were doing a, an appearance at a movie theater maybe like a year ago, and I almost went down to just see them. Uh, <laughs> and I probably would have gone up and said, Hi, I'm John Semper, I did blah, blah. And and little did I know that they were going to end up being the guys doing that Spider-Man movie. So there might have been a connection there. Yeah. A missed opportunity, I suppose. <laughs> but no, uh, Marvel is notorious for not having contacted me for anything in the last 22 years. <laughs> so. It seems to be the, um, they do their thing and then they move on with different people um, yeah. for later yeah. projects, which, you know, might be a good might be a good way to do it. Hey, listen, it's Hollywood. No, I, I don't ever expect any any of that. I think the fans expect that kind of thing more than yeah. I do. Yeah, fans uh, but I, fill out petitions for those sorts of things. Yes, they do. Yeah, and, and, you know, bless their heart that they do that. I think that's wonderful. But, uh, no, I never expected there to be any lifelong association between me and Marvel. Yeah. So um, you mentioned you're looking forward to a lot of comic book, film, and TV. Um, do you read comic books still? Or uh, is that something that's kind of fallen by the wayside? Well, it it actually pretty much had fallen by the wayside before I did Spider-Man 22 years ago. Um, I was part of the first wave, the very first wave of Marvel. I'm actually old enough to to remember when those first issues appeared. Uh, we didn't have comic book stores back in those days. We had newsstands in the subway and you know news racks and pharmacies and stuff like that, drugstores and stuff like that. So um, I picked up my first Marvel comics like you know, like a regular person. Uh, and I had a nice little co- collection. And so we're talking the sixties. Um, I I'm old enough that that was the case. And so my whole indoctrination into Marvel was when everything began and when everything was really great, you know, when you had, uh, um, Johnny Romita, uh, or Romita, uh, doing uh, Spider-Man and Jerry Conway writing. And of course, Stan before that and Steve did go. And, you know, so that, that was my era, uh, Wally Wood doing daredevil and, and, uh, um, and then, and what was great about the characters then was that they were the same age that I was. So Peter Parker was in high school. I was in high school. Peter Parker went to college the exact same year that I went to college. Um, when I got out of college, and Peter Parker was still kind of broke and, you know, being yelled at by J. Jonah Jameson. And, and it just, there wasn't a connection anymore. I just sort of felt like, oh, well, they're, they're going to keep stringing this along and, and I've, got a, I've got other things to do. <laughs> um, and so in the, in the 70s, in the late 70s, early 80s, by the early 80s, I pretty much stopped reading comics altogether. Um, and then, you know, sporadically, I'd get jobs that would require me to have to get caught up on certain comic book related things. And so I'd read a bunch. When I got Spider-Man, I made them buy me an entire run of Spider-Man, not necessarily first editions. You know, if, if things were in reprint, that was fine. Yeah. But I had every Spider-Man comic up to that point, up to 92, 93. And, um, plenty of 
source material. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I needed a reference. And in fact, they, they kind of fought me on that. They said, well, you've got Stan Lee right down the hallway. <laughs> and and I love Stan to death and he bless his heart. But sometimes he can't remember what he had for breakfast. You know, he you get the impression so that he sick. doesn't remember the old the old stories quite so well anymore. Eh, he's moved on. I mean, really, Stan has always been a guy who does a million things at once, and so it's impossible for him to remember any one thing. Um, so I, you know, I said to them, "That's not going to work. I, I really need to have a, a complete run." So I got very caught up on Spider-Man up to, up to that point. Um, but then, when the show was over, I completely turned my back on comics because I was a little burned out on the whole thing. And uh, and now, of course, I'm having to get back into the world of comic books again because I'm writing one. But yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So, um, what else is it you do in your spare time then, if you when you're not working? Well, I first of all, I'm always <laughs> the funny thing about this business is when you're not working, you're always running around looking for work or trying <laughs> to figure out some way to find work. Um, but I've always had a really big interest in computers and technology and, um, uh, you know, back, back in the day when computer animation was not a thing, I was messing around with it uh, a lot and going to SIGGRAPH, which is the big computer animation uh, and computer graphics convention that happens once or twice a year. Um, so that was a huge hobby for me. I, I, I was always kind of messing around with digital technology. Right now, I'm playing around with virtual reality, which I think is amazing, and I love. And um, yeah, so that's that's really you know in terms of hobby. And then you know I I go out and I go to events and um, I meet interesting people and I I. I have an interest in art. I have an interest in uh, in film outside of genre. Uh, I started out as something of a film buff, so that's that's always continued. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm not too dull of a guy. I, I, <laughs> I you know I have my interests. Yeah. So it was being a film buff what got you into writing in the first place? You know, sort of wanting to create your own. Yeah. Well, initially, um, I started out wanting to be in animation. That was what interested me. I was a big fan of Walt Disney, and uh, Sleeping Beauty was the the movie of my of my childhood. Uh, that was the big movie of that moment, and so I w- I was really kind of overwhelmed by that. The widescreen. It was the first widescreen animated film, mm-hmm. and the stereo sound, and it was just an overwhelming experience. So I always wanted to be in animation, and I ended up in animation. So I got to do exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. In my teenage years, I discovered film, and it was right at the beginning of the whole film tourist theory thing with the Truffauts and the Godards and the Bergmans, and um, you know, all of that was happening right when I was coming of age and being in college and everything. So I got very interested in film and following the careers of all the classic directors, Howard Hawks, John Ford, uh, Orson Welles. Um, and I became a real serious film buff. I and my friends used to go go to all kinds of lengths to see the classic films, preferably in movie theaters and preferably the way they were supposed to be, the way they were supposed to be shown. I was one of the managers, uh, the assistant managers of uh, the Orson Welles Cinema, which was one of the premier revival movie houses in America at that time. Uh, no longer exists, but it, it was quite the place to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I studied film in college. I went to Harvard, 
Uh, I got a degree in visual and environmental studies. That's what I got my BA in. And uh, there was a lot of film activity and film directors coming to town. I met Vincent Minnelli. I met uh, Eddie Dimitrik. I met um, Francois Truffaut. I met Marcel Ophuls, um, Orson Welles. So, you know, I mean, it was film was really happening and Cambridge, Massachusetts was the place to be. And that's kind of where I... I uh, came of age, so couldn't be surrounded by a better crowd than while learning your craft. Oh, it was it was wonderful. And then working in movie theaters, I started working in movie theaters when I was fifteen, and I worked for the biggest movie chain in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm from Boston, mm-hmm. uh, and I worked I worked for um, the Sack Theater chain, which was the the number one movie chain. So I got to see movies for free. I got to, you know, I I, I was a manager in their theaters, and I got to have the theater to myself for screenings of major motion pictures just simply because on a Wednesday morning when you're managing a theater and there's no one in the theater, they still run the movie anyway. Um, so I got to see things like Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West and its original release, uncut, widescreen, in the Savoy Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, which was a grand old, formerly a vaudevillian, uh, a vaudeville house, it's a grand old theater, and it's just me sitting there in the in the movie theater watching this magnificent film. It doesn't get any better than that. Sounds great. Uh, yeah, so I I really I really got to to do the film thing really well. Mm. Sounds it. It just sounds really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a way to sort of develop your uh, the career that you might want to be into, you know. Yeah, and it helped that I was pretty single focused. That I knew I wanted to get into film in one way or another ever since I was seven. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've, I've just I've been a pretty driven person. I haven't been distracted by by uh, too many other um, things. I always knew that I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing, which is mm-hmm. tell stories through film. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking of being driven, uh, you've got a crowdfunding uh, thing on the go just now for a show called War of the Rocketmen. Um, yes. So, you know, in your own words, I know you've got promotions on the Indiegogo page that I'll link on the show notes. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in your own words, sort of talk a bit about the project and how it came about and what you hope it turns into, really. Yeah, well, again, being, you know, perpetually interested in animation. Um, and there's this new thing called crowdfunding, which lets you basically raise money for projects that are that are near and dear to your heart. Um, when I was at Harvard and I had, I had a film society, I ran the Harvard film, uh, the, uh, uh, Dudley house film society was my, was my little thing. Um, one season I ran nothing but Republic serials. I've always loved the raw filmmaking, just the, just the fun action adventure filmmaking of Republic serials. It's kind of like what pulp fiction is to literature. Republic serials were to movies. They were just purely about action and purely about, you know, back in those days, superheroes who were not being allowed to get on film at all. But Republic did uh, Captain America and they did um, a lot of the early uh, comic book heroes, uh, as well as some of the other companies. Anyway, I ran serials and one of the serial characters that I think resonates with a lot of people who love that kind of filmmaking was uh, the Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. This guy who straps a rocket on his back and can fly through the air. There's just something about that character that a lot of people get excited about, myself included. Um, so uh, a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, when I gathered my cast of Spider-Man the Animated Series together um, at a uh, reunion 
for uh, a comic convention here in L.A., we all kind of looked at one another after that was over and we said, wow, that was fun and it's great being back together and wouldn't it be great if we could all work on a project together? And I said, well, you know, I mean, I, I do think up things for a living and if you guys would be willing to help me promote it, I will put together a project and let's put it up on uh, one of the crowdfunding sites and we'll see if we can make something happen. So a year went by where I commissioned artists to give me some promotional art and um, I wrote a show and a Bible and I based it on this Rocket Man character. It's very much inspired by the Rocket Man character. One of the people years ago who was inspired by the Rocket Man character was Dave Stevens and he created the Rocketeer mm -hmm. and that went on to be its own success. So this is really kind of the same thing I'm doing, which is it's basically a character who straps a rocket on his back and, and, uh, and does all kinds of wonderful things during a certain period of time, in this case, World War II. Um, and uh, the, the scenario is very much a Pulp Fiction, Republic serial kind of scenario. There, there are Nazis who have developed a rocket technology, and they are here in America, and they are wreaking havoc. Uh, sabotaging things and kidnapping people and basically trying to win win the war on this side of uh, the world and we have a similar technology a rocket pack technology and so we've created our own team of rocket men and women and they are uh, there's a kind of a secret war going on between the two of them that uh, regular people don't know about and our guy is a pilot who um, inadvertently gets sucked into all of this and becomes a rocket man and so we see things through his eyes and and it's got uh it's got that kind of film noir 1940s um you know, cover of a pulp fiction magazine sort of feeling about it and we do it in that period style um all of my cast is signed on to do it so we're talking chris barnes who was the voice of spider-man we're talking saratoga valentine the voice of mary jane watson mm -hmm. i've even got ed asner involved and he was the voice of J. jonah jameson um and yeah it's it's going to be i think really a lot of exciting fun i've got a couple of great artists working on it des taylor who's based in london who does wonderful retro artwork um he has really set the tone for this very unique retro style. Uh, I've got another great artist, Frank Grau, who's also very good at doing retro kind of pulp fiction kind of illustration. And um, we've uh, we put it up. It's uh, going really well. I've got an Indiegogo campaign happening. Uh, really great artists working on this thing that I'm very excited about, and, and they've captured the retro feeling that I'm looking for. And... Um, so far, the Indiegogo campaign is going really well. Um, we've got great perks for Spider-Man fans and for Rocketman fans. Um, so there are all kinds of wonderful opportunities, things that are available that, that will not be available after this campaign is over. Like, for instance, you can get Chris Barnes, the voice of Spider-Man, to record your phone message. Uh, or Mary Jane Watson, or Felicia Hardy, who is the voice of the Black Cat, or Gary M. Huff, who is the voice of of uh, the uh, Green Goblin. All of these guys are, are available uh, to do voice messages. Uh, and uh, those are some of the perks. Uh, also, at the end of my Spider-Man series, everybody always wanted to know, how did Peter get together with Mary Jane? I have written that script. 
we're, we're calling it the lost script, Peter Finds Mary Jane. And um, everybody who donates uh, $25 or more will get a copy of that script. Uh, so that's, I think that's a really great perk. One other perk that I'll mention, and then I'll stop talking, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, I found that I had recorded three hours, over three hours of uh, just us recording the soundtrack to Spider-Man. And I shot this in home video, and then I put it away. I never looked at it. And I uncovered it recently, and I started looking at it, and I was stunned at how much of it I had. I didn't realize I, you know, I think there's one recording session where I basically turned on the camera and just let it run for the entire recording session. <laughs> so I'm making that footage available for people to look at uh, via streaming. I'm calling it the uh, Spider-Man, the animated series behind the scenes film festival. And I'm going to have a whole lot of material from that and also some rough cut material footage. Um, the way that the show came over from overseas, you'll get to see what it looked like before we added music and effects. And before I changed a lot of the dialogue, because I had a character whose mouth was covered so I could change a lot of dialogue <laughs> just before we went to air. Um, you'll get to see that. I think that's actually worth the $25 right there. You know, the, the lowest amount you can, you can pay gets you, that's $25, it gets you, Peter finds Mary Jane, it gets you uh, the opportunity to, to view the streaming material that I'm going to be posting, um, and um, it'll get you a PDF of the uh, Bible for War of the Rocket Man with artwork by Des Taylor and Frank Rao and, and another great artist, Del Barris. Um, so, you know, I urge everyone to go to the website, um, com. You click on that. It'll take you to the uh, Indiegogo page if you need, you, you know, once you get to the War of the Rocket Men page, it will take you to the Indiegogo page. And um, there you can make a donation. Uh, and I think for, for uh, the small amount, you get a whole lot. And then, of course, it goes up from there. There are autographed comic books and autographed uh, um, cell sh reproductions. And I, I even found some pencil drawings, some actual, ac actual animation from Spider-Man the Animated Series that uh, I had a stack of pencil drawings. I'm making those available to people to buy. Um, so it's, it's a pretty good deal. If you're a Spider-Man fan, it's a great deal because of the perks. And if you are a Rocketman fan, it's a great deal because of what we're um, doing, which is bringing this, this old-style character to life, I think, in a really great way. And one other thing I was going to say about that is I've always loved the Max Flesher uh, Superman cartoons, mm -hmm. and I really want to emulate that style of the Max Flesher Superman cartoons. So if you've ever wanted to see that kind of thing brought back to life again, that's what we're attempting to do. So there you go. Yeah, it sounds like a, it'll be a great show and really retro and, and lots of, you know, sort of old-fashioned fun. I mean, I, I'm certainly looking forward to it. How many episodes well, have you got planned and, you know, when is your sort of release calendar? Well, what we're doing, um, what we're doing, what I'm doing, what I'm actually raising money for is not the animation. I'm raising money for a presentation in the form of an animatic. So that means I'll bring everybody into the recording studio and record the soundtrack for a pilot, 22-minute pilot. And then I'll have my artists draw essentially a storyboard. And from that, uh, I will create a, a visual presentation, which will be the entire pilot done in 
the uh, artwork generated by the artists. Nothing will be moving, per se, except the camera. But it will uh, enable me to create a presentation to go out and try to sell this as a network show, as, a, as an actual animated series. So in terms of the details uh, as to when it would you know, become a reality, I don't know. But this is the first phase, and we're looking to raise a relatively small amount. Um, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can raise really huge money anymore in crowdfunding. Uh, certainly not enough money to do animation really, really well. Yeah. But um, if we can get this presentation done, then I have something I can run around and go <coughs> sell. So that's that's the uh, the big goal. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's sounds interesting. Hopefully, you you'll get all the support you need, and then this can, can become a reality. Well, thank you. I certainly getting the word out to people through places like your podcast. Uh, it's yeah. tremendously helpful. Yeah, and I'll I'll definitely put all the the relevant links in the show notes, including all the um, the promo materials, which includes some of the voice work from the the actual voice actors. Uh, that, that's true. A lot of fun listening to. <laughs> um, I mean, it's good hearing Chris Barnes, you know, pretending to be Peter Parker, who then promotes a, you know, a crowdfunding <laughs> campaign. It's just really off the wall and interesting. We did some very funny promos, audio promos, and it was great fun getting everybody back in the booth. And uh, I even did literally the beginning of Peter Finds Mary Jane. I, I recorded the first couple of minutes of that. Yeah. So if you actually want to hear Chris doing Spider-Man again in something brand new, then that is one of the promos that, uh, that, you know, that your viewers, your listeners should definitely get a hold of. So. Th- Great, thank you. There are a lot, a lot of great things going on right now. If you're a fan of Spider-Man the Animated Series or Spider-Man in general, um, this campaign is generating so many interesting, fun things that you really need to uh, to be plugged into it in some way. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, so you're going to be writing a, a comic book in the near future, um, focusing on the character Cyborg, who um, you may have seen partially introduced in the recent film Batman vs. Superman. Um so how did you get into this job and what did you about that particular character? Well, it's strange. In the last 22 years, I've gotten much more love from DC and Warners than I have from, uh, from Marvel. Uh, Marvel pretty much uh, has forgotten that I existed. But on the other hand, um, many years ago for DC, I did a show called Static Shock, for which I was nominated along with a bunch of other people. We were nominated for an Emmy. Um, I did two seasons of that. Over the years, on and off, sporadically, I've done things for Warners. Um, most recently, I and my new writing partner wrote a uh, Justice League Adventures for Warners Animation, which will be coming on sometime, I don't know, in the near future. Um, I got a call. Well, a few years back, I got a call from uh, Dan DiDio, whom I've known for a good long time. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to write a comic book, and I said, sure. And, you know, that sounds interesting. And um, for one reason or another, I don't know, it just kind of didn't work out. I I think that the editor that I was working with was not quite getting what I was pitching, and I was in the middle of making a film at that time, so I wasn't pushing, you know. it, It just sort of fell apart. It was okay with me. I wanted to get my film done, and that was my priority at that particular moment. And then recently, again, and I've always kept up with Dan. I, we'd run into one another at, uh, at conventions and stuff, and we'd always chat and have a good time. 
uh, and I like him. I think Dan is really a very driven, committed guy. Uh, he's very focused and, and committed to DC and making DC great. And uh, and I've always really liked Dan. A really really good guy. Um, so recently, I got another call. Um, and actually, you know, I think what happened was they were looking for someone to do Cyborg. And another friend of mine, Dan Evans, put my name into the hat and said, well, you know, let's, we got to think about John Semper. And um, Dan and I had recently seen one another at a convention. And so I'm sure that, you know, the conversation must have gone, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I really want to do something with him. So I got a call. And the great thing that I love about DC right now is, after having been in New York, having been based in New York for how many decades, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden they moved recently, uh, only a few years ago or maybe a year ago or something. Anyway, they recently moved and they are now five minutes away from where I live. <laughs> well, that's handy. <laughs> so I, um, I got the call from them. Uh, did I want to come in? I said, sure. And I think the next day I was in the offices and I was talking with uh, Jeff Johns who's brilliant mm-hmm. and um, and my uh, my editors um, led by Brian Cunningham and um, we were talking cyborg uh, now to be honest with you I had not followed the character in years so I really needed to get caught up on what they were doing and I and and I you know discovered that as part of the new 52, they had made him a very prominent character uh, and that he was part of the Justice League. So I did my homework and I got caught up with the character and they asked what they wanted to know what my ideas were. And I shared them with them, shared my ideas with them. And uh, and we were off and running. So as of this moment, I've written three scripts, um, one of which the first one is now being drawn by Paul Pelletier who's doing an amazing job. This thing is spectacular looking. It's just epic, you know. It's, it's like a movie. You're holding a movie in your hands when you, uh, when you see this. And I'm very excited. Uh, I think that the character is perfect for me. I want to bring the same kind of depth of writing to this character that I brought to Spider-Man. This is somewhat old hat for me, taking franchise characters and doing new things with them. It's, it's something I've done several times now. Um, He's very good for um, reinterpreting characters in different ways. Yeah, I, I think that the fans are a little wary whenever they hear about a re-this or a re-that. So now there's rebirth going on, and I'm sure they're a little nervous. Uh, at least as far as Cyborg is concerned, w- what's happening here is... I'm a person who's coming into this relatively cold, just as I did with Spider-Man 22 years ago. Um, I have examined his world. I have examined the character. I've looked at the character very closely. I figured out, I think, why, what the character, what needs to happen to the character to make him interesting and entertaining and to make the comic book the kind of comic book that you don't want to put down, you know, that you want to you want to buy twice a month. Uh, I think the storytelling is going to be engrossing. I think he's going to become a character that you're going to like a whole lot. I I think up until now, he's been maybe just a little bit um, unengaging. I mean, he's a fascinating character, but I don't know that, that that the world around him has necessarily 
given him the opportunity to really shine. And so um, I'm really going to build up a, a new world around him and make him a uh, the prominent character that I think DC really wants him to be. You know, they have a movie scheduled, a cyborg movie scheduled for a couple of years from now. And what I want to do is get the comic book to be a real number one comic book so that everybody is anxious to see that movie. Mm-hmm. So when does the first issue of that uh, come out? Well, that's a very good question, Craig. <laughs> I had thought that it was going to come out in August. It's being drawn now, and it looks great. I've, I've seen the first 10 pages, so I know it exists. Um, I think they recently decided that they're going to push it back. Uh, the, and it, it has nothing to do with me or the, or the comic. It, I, there's just a whole bunch of other stuff going on right now, and everybody's, everybody at DC is spread a little thin getting, getting all this really good stuff out the door. So it's been decided that my title might be moved back a bit, and I guess maybe uh, at the earliest it would come out in September. Okay. But uh, there is a cyborg comic. I am writing it. I'm, as I said, I'm three stories in, and uh, uh, it'll come out uh, before the end of the year sometime. So keep an eye out for that, basically. Please, please do. I want everybody. I'll tell you, if everybody would just sample it. Just mm-hmm. look at the first episode, you know, the first issue, and uh, if if you if you like it, uh, then please keep buying it because I'm going to keep writing it as long as you keep buying it, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll have a good long run. So there you go. Yeah, with any luck, it'll um, it'll take off and shoot the character into the the stratosphere, of, you know, in mm-hmm. time for his film. I I think that would be a wonderful result. That would be great. Yeah, definitely. So um, now on to the the job that everyone will uh, know you for the uh, the nineties Spider Man animated series. That, um, mm. For me personally, that. I grew up on it and um, love it. Still love it to this day. Still think it holds up. And whenever I read a Spider Man comic, even now I hear Chris Barnes' voice every time. Mm-hmm. So me too. So it had that much of an effect on me growing up, and I know quite a few people that are the same. So I know a lot of people who are eager to find out a bit more about the, the ins and outs of that. So I guess mm-hmm. the, the first part is, you know, how did you get onto that? Well, um, let's see. Uh, really just kind of a fluke in a lot, in some ways kind of a fluke, and in other ways it was, it was a natural progression. Um, I was one of the most prominent cartoon writers of the 80s in that, I got to handle a lot of marquee properties and I got to work at all the major companies and I got to be at the forefront. You know, if somebody was doing a new show, I was one of the names that got mentioned. And at that time, I was, through most of the 80s, I was partnered with uh, Cynthia Friedlob, my my partner. So, um, you know, my name would have come up no matter what. Prior to that, uh, I had worked for a company called Marvel Productions, which had formerly been DePetty Freeling. And Marvel Productions was an animation company that uh, I don't even know how it got connected up with Marvel, but it did. It took on the name. And um, unfortunately, they weren't doing anything Marvel, really. They were mostly doing uh, Hasbro stuff. They had got, gotten the, the job of doing Transformers and G.I. Joe and and they were doing a little bit of Henson stuff. They did Muppet Babies. Um, I worked there. I, I had uh, started at Hanna-Barbera as a writer. And when Margaret Lesh, who was the head of, who was running production at Hanna-Barbera 
when she moved over to start running things for Marvel, she took Cynthia and I with her, and we were happy to go. Um, and uh, it was a new, exciting environment. It was a great building. Uh, it's still there uh, at the inter- intersection of Oxnard and Sepulveda. And it's still painted in the colors of Spider-Man, strangely enough. I don't think anybody realizes that that's why the building is those colors. All right. Um, you know, but it's it's a very cool little building. And um, we had offices there, and we were having a good time. And it was there. It was a very creative time. Uh, Jim Henson was periodically in and out of the building uh, because of Muppet Babies. And then subsequently a show that I did for him called Fraggle Rock, animated Fraggle Rock for NBC. Um, and uh, two doors down from me, uh, a fellow by the name of Chuck Lorre was uh, just starting his career as a writer. Uh, and, of course, now he's the king of television. <laughs> and um, there was a fellow working for Jim Henson at the time named Bill Prady, who's still a good friend. And uh, Bill is one of the co-creators, along with Chuck, of uh, The Big Bang Theory. So, you know, I mean, it was a real hotbed of a whole bunch of us young people who were just getting our careers going. And it was a great company to be working for, and Margaret created a really good atmosphere. Um, and there was a in our office by the name of Stan Lee. <laughs> and I had idolized Stan. I always used to say to him, Stan, I paid money to hear you speak in college when I was in college. And if I had known that, I would have saved the money. If I had known that I was going to know you later in life, I would have saved my money. <laughs> um, but I had paid $15 to hear him speak, to hear him lecture when I was in college. Uh, anyway, uh, obviously, I hung out a lot with Stan because I, I worshipped him, and we, we became pretty good friends. Uh, and I still worship him. I think Stan is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was that. That was Marvel production. So years later, I was at one of Stan's Christmas parties, and Jim Cameron was there, and a whole bunch of people were there. Um, I think uh, Kevin Smith was there, and uh, David Goyer was there, although I didn't meet him. Um, but a lot of people were there that night and because everyone was so excited about Cameron doing this proposed Spider-Man movie, um, Margaret was there and I think that evening everybody started talking about, well, we ought to do a cartoon show. And at one point she said, we've, we've got everything we need. You know, we've, we got the network's wanting to do it. I think Margaret might have been with Fox at the, already at that time because mm-hmm. she left Marvel Productions shut down and she left to uh, eventually head up Fox Kids TV, which was brand new. Uh, and at that time, she was running Fox Kids TV. So she said, so, you know, I've got a network that's willing to put a show on and blah, blah, blah. And we've got really great, talented people. And she gestured toward me, <laughs> which I thought was very generous of her. Um, but because I'm a realist and I know this business, sure enough, when it came time to do that series, nobody brought my name up <laughs> and, and, uh, somebody else was hired. Uh, and in fact, I was working on another show, a dreadful little puppet show called Puzzle Place, uh, at the time. And I remember, uh, being in the backyard of the producer, one of the producers of Puzzle Place. And I read the variety article about the Spider-Man show. And I thought, oh, damn, I can't believe I'm not going to get a crack at that. I really wanted to do that show, you know. And I was at that party and everything. And, um, <clears throat> and then about a week later, I got a call from Stan. And he said, um, John, we're having trouble negotiating with the, with the uh, guy that has been chosen to be the story editor. And I wanted to throw your name into the hat. And I said, please do. 
And then a week after that, he called me back, or maybe a couple of weeks later, he called me back and he said, eh, we, we closed the deal with the other guy, so I'm really sorry to get your hopes up. And I said, oh, that's okay, Stan. You know, I'm, I'm working on this puppet show and I'm fine. Um, and then a whole bunch of months went by and I got, an, I got a call and he said, there's, there's a lot of trouble here. And I just told them that I want you to come over here and do this show because I know you can do it. And this is why I love Stan, because even I wasn't sure I could do the show, but he somehow believed that I could get the show off the ground. So I came over and the show was in serious trouble. Um, they had kind of pissed away a whole bunch of their lead time and nobody was happy with anybody and um, everybody was angry and fighting and it was it's just kind of a mess uh, and the network didn't want to do the show anymore I think and quite quite understandably they didn't want to do the show anymore so I came over and I think that they kind of let me I don't think I was anybody's favorite choice but what happened was the ship was going down and they were all perfectly okay with me coming over to go down with the ship was what happened. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, we'll let him go down with the ship because we don't like him anyway. Um, and, and because they all, I think a little bit underestimated me, um, I managed to get a, a pilot out the door, literally out the door at the last minute. Um, uh, because Avi Arad needed to have a pilot, out the door by a certain time in order to make a September air date in order to be able to sell his toy line, which was going to be rolled out. Um, and that this is, this was the big pressure. You know, these shows, these shows are always the most important shows in the universe. And then you do the job and you get them out the door and then everybody forgets how important it was over the years. And you're, you're nobody, you're nothing. And they don't want to know you anymore. I, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm pretty sure at this day and age, Avi just hates me for one reason or another. But I did get his damn show on the air uh, by September, and he did manage to sell his damn toys. And so thank you very much for hating my guts, Avi, after all these years, for having done that for you. Um, then began a kind of a, uh, a, the first 13 episodes was very rocky where, you know, I've, I've talked about this before. I was mostly fired because there was a lot of political subterfuge going on, and there was one person in particular, I think, who really just wanted me out of the building. But I managed to finagle. I'm a lot smarter than I look, and I managed to tap dance my way around all the problems. And after the first 13, they signed me on for the remainder of the series, and then they were stuck with me. <laughs> and it was sort of like, well, oh, you're here, and we're up and running, and the show's sort of doing okay, so, you know, you can stick around. That's kind of that's the way that's pretty much the way I was treated the entire time I was there. In the meantime, you know, there were certain ways in which I gave them the finger uh, and uh, and just did the show that I wanted to do. Um, I know that uh, through most of the production, Bob Richardson was really pissed off that he didn't know what the hell where the hell my story was going. And I was you know, I had Madam Webb and I was leading up to this big thing and nobody had any idea what the big thing was. It was just locked in my head somewhere. Had I been hit by a bus, they'd have really been screwed because I did not share with them where I was going. So did you always know where that where that was all going and how the show would serve? And yeah, it went through it went through phases. Yeah, it went through phases. The first thirteen episodes, I w those were just individual episodes. So it's that quite you know, there was no, in the beginning, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, there was no problem there. Um, and then 
when the neogenic stuff started with the second season, um, I didn't really have an end game in sight. I was mostly just sort of developing the characters and developing the interrelationships. And mostly that was kind of, you know, I wanted to build up to turning point. Mm -hmm. I wanted to build up to, there were certain things I wanted to get to. Then there was kind of a burnout period where I was really kind of just sick of the show and tired. And um, at one point I debated whether or not to bring a couple of writers on as co-story editors because I really was tired. Um, and then I hit my second win. I just one day woke up and I thought, hey, no, I'm ready to go. And, you know, and I couldn't negotiate a deal with these writers. They wanted a whole lot of money and they wanted they were sort of feeling like they were the kings of the hill, these, this particular writing duo, and I, I just couldn't be bothered with any of that. Um, so, uh, you know, somehow I found my second wind, and um, then, yeah, then that last phase, I did know where I was going. I always knew. The minute Madam Webb showed up and started talking about this big thing that he, she wanted Spider-Man to do, I knew exactly where that was going. I knew where you know how I wanted to break it down, and I knew I wanted to do Secret Wars, and and fold it into my story. And I knew that I was headed for. See, I'm still talking like it's a big secret, you know. <laughs> I knew that I was headed for the for the uh, saving all of reality. I think you can't get any bigger than that. If you just say you're going to save all of reality, then let's just you know that's the end of the series. And I knew the series was going to end. I knew we weren't going to get picked up for any more. Because of all the politics and the fact that everybody still basically fundamentally hated everyone else, mm. including me. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was, it was this wonderful um, opportunity that I knew that I would never get again. I knew that I would never get that kind of control over a show again. Mm. No one would ever hire me and say, here, here are 65 half hours, at least 50 of which you're going to pretty much get to do whatever you want. That, and sure enough, that has never happened since. So um, I figured I just, I really have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and you had pretty unrestricted access to the, the Marvel Universe as it was at the time. So, you know, there was lots of guest stars in terms of different characters. And, um, you know, who, was, who would you say is your favorite out of the other heroes that you brought on? Well, I was in a very fortunate position because Marvel was in uh, a lot of trouble. It's very hurtful to understand today, but Marvel was mostly sort of bankrupt at that particular moment and and uh, Abby had done me a wonderful favor which is had told the Marvel guys they were going to have nothing to do with the cartoon show and that they should basically just piss off <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they had no control you know Marvel had nothing to do with my show I mean, wh whoever Marvel was at that time I didn't have to answer to them I you know there was no contact with them whatsoever the other thing was um Marvel had not yet parceled out all of its characters to all these different movie studio studios. In fact, that was what Avi was really busy trying to do, was trying to get movies made. And mm -hmm. so that, that's kind of why when he took the spotlight off of... When he stopped being as involved in my show as he had been in the beginning, it was mostly because he wanted to try to get a movie made. Um, and a lot of people get really, I think, get down on Avi. Um, for better or worse, he really did work hard to get movies made. And at a time when no studio in America wanted to make a superhero movie, if you can believe that that time ever existed. <laughs> so this man was going into all these different studios and, try, and talking to producers and stuff, and absolutely nobody wanted to touch any of this stuff. It was not, it was poison. Yeah. So, so, you know, to a great extent, 
the fact whether you whether you like him or not, um, he really is responsible for getting Marvel movies made. That was what he was doing. But at that time, he hadn't made any real deals, and um, I had the entire pantheon of Marvel characters available to me. It's funny because a year after I finished Spider Man, when I went to uh, talk to those folks at Marvel about um, doing, I think I did a couple of Hulk scripts. And at that time, by then, they had already started to make a few deals. And so the the catalog was not available. A lot of the characters were not available. And I remember um, a fellow by the name of Matt Edelman saying to me, um, we had a meeting, and he said, yeah, it's a little different from when you were doing Spider-Man. He said, we, we, we don't have as much control over these characters as we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, when I did Spider-Man, I could do any Marvel character I wanted, within, within reason. There were a few exceptions, uh, and, and these are well-documented because I've talked about them in the past. Uh, I couldn't use Electro or... or um, initially, I couldn't use Electro or Sandman because Jim Cameron was going to put them in his movie. And then everyone always says, yes, but you did use Electro. And that's, yeah, it's at the very end when um, Cameron had... his. It was obvious that his movie wasn't going to happen. And I just did it anyway, as you know, because at that point, I didn't care. It wasn't like anybody could fire me. We were at, <laughs> we were at the end of the series, and, and, uh, and I knew it was over. So... Um, those were restrictions. I did do a Ghost Rider outline, Spider-Man Ghost Rider thing. Um, but at that time, Avi was running around talking about maybe doing a Ghost Rider show for UPN, which was a network here in the States at that time. And Fox didn't want to promote uh, anything that was going to end up on UPN. Um, although, you know, see then, strangely enough, we did do Fantastic Four and we were simultaneously in the process of doing a Fantastic Four syndicated show, which I think did end up on UPN. So, you know, that was... Things happen where you have an idea that week and you go to your network guy that week and the network guy's a pain in the ass that week, you know, because he he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and he says, "Eh, I don't want you to do Ghost Rider. Nah, nah, you know, and, and and then he gets great pleasure out of the fact that you went to all the trouble to write an outline and now you have to throw it away and you get angry and he enjoys that because our particular network guy just loved it when when we all got angry with one another i think he was always pissed off at me that i'd gotten the show out the door in the first place because he had spent a good deal of time in the early days telling everybody that you know spider-man was a disaster and semper was going to screw everything up and then we had a hit show so that left him with a little bit of egg on his face, and then he had to he had to continue to trash me probably to this very day. But um, you know, so that week we didn't he didn't want to do Ghost Rider, and therefore we didn't end up doing Ghost Rider. Um, and then who else did I not get to use? Um, the Hulk was another one. Yeah, he was mentioned, uh, wasn't he? But he never actually appeared. Yeah, we mentioned him. We didn't get to do the Hulk because of the same thing. There was going to be a Hulk syndicated show that Avi was shopping around and. They didn't want to promote the Hulk. And I think at that point, that really looked like it definitely was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there really was a mandate not to use the Hulk in the Spider-Man show. Which, you know what, and I, I always, people always get angry with me when I say this. It's just fine with me because I've never been a huge fan of the Hulk. <laughs> and dramatically speaking, I wouldn't have known really what to do with him. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think it would have resulted in a very good episode. So, was, so that Hulk, uh, was that the Hulk show that eventually the, became the Neil McDonough one that that was on for a little while? 
I don't know who Neil McDonald is. Who's Neil McDonald? Neil McDonald. He was the the guy that voiced uh, Bruce Banner in that show. He's since went on. He was um, Dum Dum Dugan in Captain America. And oh, he's currently the villain in Arrow. Ah, well, I have no idea. I wrote, uh, it, you know, I wrote two episodes of it, and I was never around for when they did any of the production or anything like that. So I, I did not realize who he was. You see how connected I am to the world of comic books. <laughs> Um, but yeah. Anyway, the the one thing I did do in the in my Hulk was I brought back Doctor Strange because I I always loved Doctor Strange mm-hmm. and I had brought him into Spider Man, yeah. and uh, uh, I've used him again in the Hulk. So. So was he your favorite um, guesting hero than Doctor Strange? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I would have loved to have done a Doctor Strange show. I know that Marvel did eventually do a Doc Strange. Um, original animation video. Uh, I would have loved to have done something like that. Um, and I, you know, I haven't looked at it. I don't know what it, if it ended up being any good. Have you seen it? Was it any good? Yeah, I quite liked it. Yeah, um, I'm interested okay. to see how the Benedict Cumberbatch movie turns out. Oh, I'm so happy and excited about that. And I think he's the perfect person. And it looks like they've done it really well. I mean, I think that Marvel handles all their movies really well. I, they just. They know exactly what works, exactly why you love the character. They structure the stories really well. Um, I'm always excited about seeing Marvel movies because I think they do a fantastic job. So, yeah, there you got, go. They've got a hold of their audience, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, when it came to uh, putting Spider-Man on the, the small animated screen, uh, what to you is important about him and you know how did you... Uh, think he should have came across on the show you know what ultimately created that version of spider-man well this is something you know whenever people um and and it doesn't happen very often but whenever people trash the series for one reason or another um i always want to remind them that you know i hear i hear well this, this spider-man show is better your show sucks or something like that and i think to myself well Whatever Spider-Man show it is that you think is better, and it's usually a later one, and it's usually a lot of times it's Spectacular Spider-Man, which I've never laid eyes on, so this, has, this is not a slam against Spectacular Spider-Man. I'm sure it's every bit as brilliant as everyone says that it is. But you have to understand that it comes after mine, and it comes after the movies. So you have something to look at. You know, You have something to look at and say, okay, well, that works. Oh, that doesn't work. Okay, I don't want to do that. Okay, I want to do that. And especially coming after my show, because we did so much, you know, and for a long time, we were the longest running Spider-Man show. I don't know if we still are, but we, you know, it's 65. I think you Hmm? might be, yeah, Ultimate Spider-Man might be catching up, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they're determined to do like 66, just so that (laughs) they can take the crown away from me. But that's all right. Um, But the reality is that when we did our show, we really had nothing to look at. Because the shows that had come before us were clearly Saturday morning shows. They were not really attempting to bring the comic book to life the way that the comic book was written. And so there, there were a lot of decisions that had to be made on our show, some of which worked, some of which maybe didn't. But, um, and then, you know, you can get a much better production qu- quality now today in animation than you could back in the old days because of just, you know, the, the rise of technology. So... Um, when I, okay, I want to make sure I answer your question exactly. So tell me again what your question was. It was just uh, about how you created that version of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and, you know. Okay, good. Well, I w- you should come across. 
I was answering it then. <laughs> so the thing that was really difficult was figuring out how I wanted to bring these characters to life. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, it's Spider-Man and, you know, and he does this and he does that and he does the other. But it's another thing to fashion dramatically 22 half-hour episodes that are going to have a beginning and middle and an end and are really going to engage the audience and make sense. And, you know, do we hear Spider-Man's thoughts the way we do in the comic book or, or not? And, and we decided that we would. I, des- I decided that we would. I didn't know if that was going to work, uh, you know. I mean, it's when, you're, when you're operating in the dark. And then the other thing that you have to remember is when you do your first 13 episodes, you don't see any film. The closest you get to understanding what you're doing and whether or not it's working is in the recording booth when you're working with the actors. But nine months go by and you don't see a scrap of film. So you write your entire first season not having any idea whether or not anything's working. Um, so all of those kinds of things uh, needed to be figured out. Fortunately, I had already run a couple of animated shows, so I had a pretty good sense of what might work. Um, but the reality is, the bottom line is, when you're doing Spider-Man, it isn't a Spider-Man show. What I told my writers was, we're doing the Peter Parker show, and mm-hmm. Spider-Man is just an aspect of his life. Which is how Marvel have always handled their characters. Historically. Absolutely. I wasn't doing anything new or innovative. I was simply paying attention to the material. That's what I love about the current Marvel movies is they pay attention to the material and they bring the material to life. And having had experience doing that, I understand what that means and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really it's all about Peter Parker. And that's why I needed to bring up a, a, you know, a real strong cast of characters around him and create conflicts that were personal as opposed to epic and superhero oriented. It's, it's all about how his life is complicated and everything that happens up in the air as Spider-Man is just an exaggerated complication that messes with his personal life. If you don't do that, then you basically screw up Spider-Man. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So was it difficult? I mean, uh, your name is on the writer's side for every single one of the episodes. Um, was yeah. it difficult having a hand in all of them? Or, you know, did you prefer it that way? Or were there some that you thought maybe you would have liked to see someone else sort of take over? No, that's my gift. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of things I can't do in life, and I'm, I'm very clear about admitting those. But the one thing I can do and that I can do really well is I can break stories. Um, so for me, that's the fun. That's the fun thing is sitting there and thinking up stories and, and structuring them the right way and getting them just right. I, I never had a whole lot of difficulty. Some stories were easier than others, but, um, every story started with me, started with me having an idea and then, um, talking it out, usually pretty much dictating it to the writer. Uh, and I, re- I recorded all my phone conversations and all of my meetings, so I, I actually have a record of, of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would sit and, and I just beat out the stories. Um, sometimes I'd get an idea from a comic book and I'd say, or a comic book cover. You know, uh, There was a comic book cover that was J. Jonah Jameson, you know, Man of the People or something like that. It was a big close-up of his head, and it was all about him going out and being a, being a crack reporter the way he had been in the old days. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's a great, that's an episode right there. Hmm. Um, and I, the, you know, the comic book stories were usually pretty thin and weak and not terribly exciting. 
but just the idea. So I did a story where J. Jonah Jameson decides he's going to go out and he's going to get to the bottom of something. And, uh, and you know, he runs into all his old cronies and it's like, ah, you know, hey there, J.J., see you back out on the street. And they have, they have a nickname for him, which I've yeah. totally forgotten now. Um, Jigsaw, it was. Jigsaw, yeah. Jigsaw, right. Hey, Jigsaw, there you are. And that, that just came from a comic, you know, comic book cover. Um, but once I started beating out the story, I'd sit with the writer and we'd, we'd flesh it out. And, um, and then I would determine, usually that writer would then write that story. Sometimes it would get handed off to other writers, or I'd be working directly with the freelancers to begin with. Um, and then I, I rewrote everything, you know, once I got the first draft in or first couple of drafts. And I think I'd have a writer usually do two drafts, and then after that I'd rewrite everything from there. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was pretty immersed. I think part of the reason that I didn't bother with Spider-Man anymore after the show was that for two or three years of my life, I lived nothing but Spider-Man. <laughs> and it's hard after that. You know, the, it's the reason I don't watch any of the cartoon shows is because you look at it and you go, eh, I wouldn't have done that. Or, eh. You know, I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of pissed off that that person got paid a script fee for that. <laughs> you know, um, so it's... it's uh, and actually, I, there are still Spider-Man movies I haven't seen. People always ask me if I've seen the Spider-Man movies, and more often than not, I say, yeah, 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 great. Oh, yeah, I love them. I, I haven't seen them. Uh, I, I've seen bits and snippets of them, but they're very hard for me to look at. Yeah. Uh, I did watch the Mark Webb, first Mark Webb one, because he had done us the tremendous compliment of citing our show, my show, as one of the influences. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, let me check this out and, and see what's going on. Um, you know, so I did watch that. But for, for I, my head was so involved in Spider-Man for so many years that I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and I've not really uh, paid a lot of attention to, to a lot of screen stuff. So have you seen the Tom Holland version from Civil War yet? No, I will see that. Um, I, I usually wait until the crowds have gone and then I go catch a morning screening where I'm the only guy in the theater and uh, uh, I will see that. I'll probably see that in the next few days. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'm going to love it. Everyone says they love it. So they, obviously they've done it right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, If you were I'm taking sure. the comic book version and bringing them to life, uh, that's pretty much what they've done. So, that sounds great. Yeah. So with, uh, with your series, you had some really excellent voice talent on some of the, some of which are now really prolific. Like, Jennifer mm-hmm. Hale has, you know, famously um, delivered a great performance in the Mass Effect series and stuff like that. So how yep. involved were you in casting all of them? And, you know, what ultimately led to some of the bigger decisions on your leads, if you will? I wasn't involved in casting any of them. Uh, Bob Richardson handled that in conjunction with Ralph Sanchez and Tony Pastor. Ralph was kind of our, our casting guy and Tony was uh, our voice director. Um, I would be privy to a lot of the auditions and I would, you know, I occasionally they would ask my opinion, but as far as the main cast was concerned, I had absolutely nothing to do with casting. I mentioned this in, in, in the past, um, when it came down to, I, th- I think we were down to two voices, Chris or Billy Campbell. And I had been a huge Rocketeer fan. See how it all ties together? You know, Rocketman, Rocketeer, Billy Campbell. <laughs> yeah, and I was excited about Billy Campbell, and I did not know Chris at the time, and I had no awareness of of his talent, which is tremendous. And so I probably would have, if it had been left up to me, I would have hired Billy Campbell. Um, and I was there for that audition, the Bill Campbell audition. I happened to show up for that one. 
Um, but that would have been a mistake because Chris is Spider-Man. So I would have screwed it up. Uh, and, uh, um, and I think that, that the powers that be, you know, those kinds of decisions get made, got made between Bob and the network. The network weighs in very heavily on those kinds of decisions when you're talking about a main cast. Um, and Avi obviously had a huge say. So it was really not something I needed to be bothered with. I was too busy trying to get the show off the ground from a writing perspective. Yeah. Now, later on down the line, uh, as the show got running, you know, I would occasionally go and say, hey, you know, you should consider hiring this person for that. Um, I'm a big Star Trek fan. So, you know, if, if a Star Trek person turns up in Spider Man, that's me. That's my suggestion. So, David Warner so and. Michelle yeah. and all of them. All the, you know, Major Roddenberry and uh, George Takei. I, I was responsible for all of those. Um, I tried to get, here's a good one, I tried to get Patrick McGowan. Not because I'm a Prisoner fan, although I'm a fan of the show, but because I'm a huge Danger Man fan, you know, Secret Agent, as we called it here in the States. It was Secret Agent. Um, I love that show to this day. And I wanted to work with Patrick McGowan, and I knew he was here out here on the West Coast. And I had a phone conversation with him, which was certainly one of the high points of my life. And um, he wanted to do it, but he was busy. They had just approached him to write a Prisoner movie. And he was busy at work on the Prisoner movie, and, uh, and he didn't think he was going to have the time to be able to come and do it. Um, but but the highest compliment he paid me was that he told me I had a great voice. You have a great voice. I like your voice. He said, no. and so I was on cloud nine uh, for about a day just based on that that compliment. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean you know, so I would recommend people down the line. Um, but uh, um, see if they're available, and then if so, then great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would always the call would get made if I if I went and said, hey, you know, let's get Major Roddenberry for this, and the call would get made, and more often than not, we get the person. Yeah, so. well, she was quite a prominent guest star for quite a lot of it. Uh yeah, you know, we cast her as Anna Watson, yeah. um, and then Major and I became pretty good friends, and and uh, that was really a, a cool. You know, the great thing about the cast and and the voice for me, the favorite part of being in animation is working with voice talent. Strangely enough, not artists. Artists usually annoy the hell out of me, but um, <laughs> the voice talent, it, I love those guys. I just have so much fun with those guys and going to vo voice sessions. And, and, um, and so the, probably the thing I'm proudest of is that I have been friends now for 20 years with all of the main cast. Hmm. And that's kind of what makes War of the Rocketmen happen. You know, I, I, they have all ended up being close friends of mine. All I had to do was pick up the phone and say, hey, I want to do this. I, initially for the reunion, all I had to do was pick up the phone and say, hey, we're going to have a reunion. And they'd all, they all came running, and they're great people. They are really wonderful people, tremendous talents, and uh, I'm very lucky to have them as, uh, as friends. So there you go. Are you going to ask Mark Hamill to be involved in more of the Rocket Man? You know, I, I knew Mark. <laughs> Mark and I were, were friendly when we were doing Spider-Man, and, uh, and then I kind of dropped off his radar, and he, uh, you know, he dropped off mine. Um, Mark is, is a great talent. I'd certainly not hesitate to pick up a phone and try to see if I can get him, but you know, now he's Mr. Star Wars all over again. <laughs> so uh, the chances of me being able to get him to do War of the Rocket Men, I don't know, are slim. Um, but, uh, but I do... I found him to be a really great guy, 
and when I knew him, when I was knowing him 20 years ago, um, you know, we were we had a really nice uh, interaction. Um, but you know, a guy like Mark Hamill leads a life where he meets many, 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 many people, and unless there is a reason for him to be mindful of them, uh, I, I'm not sure that he would even remember who I was at this particular point. I did run into him at a function maybe about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago and renewed the acquaintance a little bit. But, you know, uh, it, it's really hard. People who are in the limelight like they are, um, it's really hard to to stay on their radar. I was always very impressed that Jim Henson would always, you know, know not only did he know who I was, but he liked me. And I'm sure if Jim were alive today, I could go pick up a phone and say, hey, Jim, it's John Semper. And, you know, it, it, it would be like, you know, we had never stopped hanging out with one another. Uh, and it's that way with Stan. I'm one of the few people that can get Stan on the phone. You know, if I call and leave him a message at his office, he'll call me back within about 24, 48 hours. I am tremendously, I feel tremendously blessed that that happens because Stan is probably the busiest human being on the planet. So, so what kind of input did he have in the show in general? I mean, I know he was involved, but... Yeah, don't know what kind of scale it was. Well, both Stan and Avi were very involved in the show, especially in the first 13 episodes. Um, And they should be given a lot of credit for that. Uh, Avi, the way I learned to work with Avi was that Avi never really had a a story idea, but he always would have a scene. Mm -hmm. He'd say, I I see a scene and Doc Ock, you know, Felicia is on on a balcony and all of a sudden a metal arm comes up and grabs her. And, and, And so I put that um, Avi would always have a scene that he that he wanted inserted into something, and and after a while, I just learned, okay, just put the scene in, no big deal. It was usually something really epic and something that that he was excited about. Stan was a little different. Stan um, would have to <laughs> Stan would have to get dragged to to our meetings. We we did read throughs, uh, and Stan really was busy, and he didn't want to be bothered. But Avi would always drag him into it, and uh, but Stan really has a genius for story and dialogue. Uh, I tend to be very verbose in my dialogue, and Stan would always go, no! <laughs> Cut that out and just have him say this! You know? And what's funny is, I'm re-watching all the episodes right now, um, and I can, I can still remember whose line was whose, okay? <laughs> so I go, okay, well, that's, that's you know, a Berkowitz line, and that's a Hoffmeyer line, and that's my line, and I can always remember Stan's lines. Hmm. You know, where, where I'm trying to think of one, because I just saw one the other day. I was watching Spider Slayers, and there were a whole bunch of Stan lines right in a row. And they're just very direct. It's just, ah, 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 you know, and, and right to the point and cuts through all my verbosity. Um, so Stan was very involved, and his voice is very strong in the first 13 episodes. After the first 13 Avi kind of got busy doing other things, and so he wasn't bragging Stan to meetings, and Stan was thrilled to not have to be bothered, you know, doing it anymore. And so after the first 13, we, we pretty much lose Stan mm-hmm. in the series. But the first 13, he's very infused in the, uh, in the DNA of, of those 13 episodes. Cool. Um, it's, it's interesting to know what kind of involvement he had, because, you know... Obviously, he's the biggest kid ever and just, you know, still mm-hmm. loves all this stuff and could talk about it for days if you let him, it seems. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to know where, where he was involved. 
Yeah, in Day, in Day of the Chameleon, the only line I can remember right now is in Day of the Chameleon when, when uh, Nick Fury, uh, the white Nick Fury, the original Nick Fury, <laughs> is busy chewing out uh, Jameson when he's explaining what's going on. He says something like, um, all right, so get it, Jameson. I want you to make zero mistakes. I'm only going to tell you this once, and I want you to make zero mistakes. And I think I still have that draft where Stan had crossed out lines and had scribbled in lines, you know, and I just remember the zero mistakes line. <laughs> but, you know, he really, I mean, he did exactly for my series in the first 13 episodes. He did what he must have done for the comic books, the comic books back in the 1970s, yeah. you know. So that was pretty the, exciting. That adds to the authenticity as well, you know, when you've got mm-hmm. that kind of, um, I don't want to say overseer, but, you know, You've got that kind of clout hanging around. Yeah, it was great. And and Avi made Stan be involved in in every creative decision on the you know at the beginning of the show. I have uh, again, I have all this on audio tape. Hmm. Um, I had argued vehemently that we not start with the hobgoblin. I wanted the green goblin to come first. Uh, Avi needed to have the hobgoblin come first because of a uh, uh, because they had created hobgoblin toys. <laughs> And he was afraid that the toys wouldn't sell if the Hobgoblin wasn't in the show in the first season. And so, you know, we went back and forth. It wasn't a very um, aggressive argument. Uh, but, you know, there, I wanted it one way and Avi thought it should be the other. And then at one point, I pointed out to them in the comic book that there really wasn't any story behind the Hobgoblin. It just, it just wasn't anything there. And, um, and so he and Stan were going to make up a story. And, and give it to me, you know. And, and so I said, okay, great. So um, we sat in a story session. I sat in a story session with Avi and Stan where they tried to come up with a story for the Hobgoblin. I have it all on tape. <laughs> and, and one day it'll be an archive or something. Um, but the uh, name story, because the Hobgoblin is kind of a boring character, or at least he was at that particular moment in time. Again, I, I don't know what's gone on with him in the comic book since 1993. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, that, but that's how involved the, both those guys were willing to be. That they were sitting in a room with me trying to think up a story. And I think we did we did that for two days. You know, they came and they were trying to think up a story, and then they came the next day and they were trying to think up a story. And finally, Avi just said, well, you do it. <laughs> That's what you're paid for. So I ended up thinking up the story that ended up being a two-parter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that is that is how tremendously invested they were in the series. And then you don't find out the identity for another couple of seasons. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, it's funny. I, I'm, wa- I'm re-watching the episodes now. I, some of them I haven't seen in 20 years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of re uh, I don't know. I'm 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 becoming more aware of how I played out a lot of the story threads, and, yeah. and I'm actually being pleasantly surprised. I, I had never thought much of Spider Slayer, the original Spider Slayer episode. It was sort of like, oh yeah, I remember I did that. We, we had to sell the toy, and I, I looked at it day before yesterday, a couple of days ago, and I thought, wow, this is a great episode. I introduced all the characters and all their interrelationships, and you know, gave Felicia this wonderful showcase, and. I, uh, really turned out to be a pretty well written episode, and then the follow up Spider Slayers again, which was basically to sell the toy, 
it was tight, it was exciting, it was, uh, you know, and I had just totally forgotten all of that. I was, all I remembered was, oh yeah, those toy episodes. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, you know, I think we did a really good job uh, when all is said and done. Hmm. Yeah, so um, obviously the whole make an episode to sell toys would be a kind of network thing that you would get told to do. Um, my, I think my favourite one is the the one about uh, Spider-Man must not disturb pigeons when he lands on a roof or something like that. <laughs> well, what, yeah. What other notes did you get that were a bit weird? And well, I, I, this opens up an interesting subject. First of all, uh, toy sales were not anything the network cared about or or advocated. So that wasn't the network thing. Okay. That was Avi. That was Avi. He he had a company called Toy Biz. They had a lot of money invested in the toys, and the whole idea behind putting the series on the air, as far as he was concerned, was to sell toys. So that little bit of pressure came from him, and quite frankly, it wasn't a whole lot of pressure. It was, it was a little bit of pressure. Um, the network, okay, this business of network notes, this, this raises this issue of censorship. My, my series has gotten this, this rumor, this urban myth, that we had lots of censorship. <laughs> this drives me crazy when I read this in the, in the comment thread. Someone will say, hey, I really like that Spider-Man the Animated Series. And then some idiot will reply, well, I really would have liked it, but they had lots of censorship, and that's why I can't like the show, because <laughs> of all the censorship. There's just too much, and so the show sucks. Well, that is so f- effing moronic, I can't begin to tell you, and it drives me crazy every time I see it, because... We did not have lots of censorship. That is a, r- a rumor and a myth, and it is wrong. We did not. What happened was that when I used to go to conventions, for lack of anything interesting to do, I would read funny broadcast standards and practices notes. Now, you have to understand, every cartoon show got broadcast standards and practices notes yeah, and I'm sure Batman they would have the same kind of problems. Everyone, we all lived in the same world, TV world. There was no difference really. Um, Batman got away with a little bit of stuff because those guys fought for it, and then they also, um, you know, they were sort of. It was new. Everything was new. Fox was new, and Batman was new, and Warner's was new, and so a lot of stuff slipped through the cracks in that first season for those first couple of seasons. But then, as they continued, the same they were under the same network restrictions that we were, which were not very restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read these notes. I used to go to the conventions, and I would read these notes, and everybody... I think what happened was, for the first time ever, people realized that there was broadcast standards and practices. I think that, that kids didn't understand that that even existed. So I, I just thought I would say, hey, the funny thing happened here, but... In point of fact, these kids were going, wow, wow, there's this thing called, you know, censorship and broadcast standards. And pro- wow. And, and only Spider-Man has it. And then I stupidly did an interview um, when I was really angry about the show. And, and we can get into that a little later. But, but I did an interview for a, a, an online thing called Toon Zone. It's sort of a famous interview. And I was really pissed off. And, and, I, and I happened to mention, you know, my list of, of uh, funny broadcast standards notes. But it was with an edge. You know, I probably said like, yeah, and we got a lot of broadcast standards and practices notes. Well, I didn't realize that at that time that everything on the Internet lives forever and <laughs> and becomes its own ugly monster, you know. Yeah. And, and out of that 
came this rumor that we had lots of censorship. Um, one of the things that gets cited was um, that we used laser rifles instead of regular real weapons. Well, the fact of the matter is that that was a, a conscious decision, mostly because we just thought, hey, if we use these laser weapons, we won't have to worry about this stupid broadcast standards and practices note anymore. Um, but then there's the episode where Randy Robertson, Robbie Robertson's son, got a gun. And I went to Avery Evans, the broadcast standards and practices person that I liaised with. And I said, hey, we're going to do an episode about a gun. And it's going to be a real gun. And it's going to look like a gun. And it's going to be about all about how guns suck, you know, or at least that's the message that we're going to give, that guns for people who are underage, probably not a good idea. And she went, okay. <laughs> okay, you know, just run it past me and, and we'll look at it. Um, that's, that's how much that myth is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other thing that gets cited is, well, Spider-Man didn't throw a lot of punches. Spider-Man didn't throw a lot of punches, so your show sucks. <laughs> well, to you, Mr. Internet Moron, um, and not to you, Craig, but to, to, the, to our imaginary Mr. Internet Moron, <laughs> who seems to feel that that's a real criticism... Uh, I don't believe in modeling for children um, conflict resolution by way of physical uh, damage. Um, So that probably had more to do with me than anything else. I don't believe that if you're doing a show for for kids as young as six years old, that your lead character should be socking people in the jaw, especially when he has webbing, and that's much more colorful and much more interesting. So the fact that Spider-Man didn't sock people in the jaw, and, you know, we might have gotten a note or two about that, but I wouldn't have done it anyway, Mm -hmm. because that's just not the way I work. I have to live with myself at the end of the day. So um, it's a complete and total myth. The myth sucks. I hate it. Uh, Somebody recently, um, uh, the Frederator Studios channel on... uh, on uh, YouTube recently did a thing called 101 Facts about Spider-Man, the animated series, about 60 of which are actual facts, and the rest of it's just sort of regurgitating a lot of myth and rumor. Um, And unfortunately, they didn't check with me first when they put it out there. They did rather nicely reach out to me, did I want to make any corrections? But, you know, the thing's already out there. And and in order for me to correct it, I would have had to watch it again, which is somewhat (laughs) painful. So, um, you know, and, and they re- repeated that again, you know, and one of the things about Spider-Man is that it had a lot of censorship. They had to deal with a lot of censorship. Oh, my God, the censorship. And it's sort of like, oh, God, here we go. And, you know, another, another wind beneath those wings. So once again, it's out there. We didn't have censorship. And uh, that's, that's the reality. Yeah, the, okay. o- the only piece of editing I ever heard about was um, the, the mention of the World Trade Center explosion um, that was edited for some broadcasts of it. Well, that was cut out. Yeah. That was just flat out cut out. We, I, I actually did a couple of episodes where the World Trade Center, people forget that the World, say, the World Trade Center had been bombed. There had been a garage bomb yeah. prior to it being brought down, like a couple of years prior uh, or many years prior. And um, that was what I was referencing. Uh, so I had something happen in the garage of the World Trade Center. Uh, and I also, there were um, moments where it, it turned up. It still turns up in the series. You can see it in the background from time to time. Yeah, the, the DVD version I've got has the, the line in there, actually. 
Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of couple of references to the World Trade Center that all got cut out subsequently. Um, but that wasn't, you know, that was understandable. That yeah. w- didn't have anything to do with any kind of censorship that I faced. Um, and I, you know, so I, yeah, I'll tell you the biggest BS and P note I got that I had to argue. And the only time I remember I remember arguing a BS and P note was um, the slap at the end of uh, Day of the Chameleon. <laughs> When Mary Jane says, thanks, you know, she slaps him across the face and says, thanks. And he goes, for what? And she says, you know, for not coming to my play. <laughs> and, and, or, and don't you ever kiss me like that again. And he goes, oh my, you know, I didn't kiss you. Oh, oh my God, the chameleon. <laughs> that slap, I had to argue. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like, uh, no, she can't slap him. Well, no, wait a minute. Hold it. Wait, hold. You know, that's an a abusive real- relationship. <laughs> right, exactly. Physical abuse. Well, you have to remember, we were in the middle of OJ. Uh, at one point while doing Spider-Man. And, um, and so the whole issue of uh, domestic abuse and boyfriend-girlfriend abuse and everything. So, yeah, that's the only, that's the only thing I ever argued for. And, and really, I might have even been wrong, quite frankly, because now that I think back on it, it's probably not a good idea for Mary Jane to have slapped him across the face. But it was such a nice cut, you know? Yeah. It's like he opens the door and pow, right across the face. <laughs> you know? I, I don't and, remember and, it bothering me too much, to be honest. Yeah, well, of course, of course I think, not. Um, you know. I think kids are are more resilient than you might think, and you know they can put up with a fair amount of stuff. You know, absolutely. That's stuff, why I, stuff that yeah, parents get bothered about isn't the same things that kids will get bothered about. Absolutely, and, and and you know the ability to write for children is the ability to tap into the child in yourself. Yeah. It has nothing to do with, with whether you have children or not. It's whether or not you can remember what it was like being a child. And I remember what it was like being a child. And uh, I, I kind of knew what would work and what wouldn't work or what was good for a kid and what wasn't good. And I never wrote down to kids anyway. So, yeah. you know, there you go. Yeah, the, the, the ones that do um, tend to not last long as far as, as far as I can tell. I mean, Oh, it's, it's garbage. Yeah, um, because, you know, the reason I can still watch it now is because, I, you know, I feel like it's... It's intelligently written, you know. It's as intelligently written as you know the the great comics were, and and um, you know I can sit and watch it because it's a good story. Whereas if I watch Ultimate Spider-Man, for instance, personally, I think that's definitely for young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's well, there's a place you. for everything, but you know, for me, I'd rather yeah. I'd rather just watch a Spider-Man show that happens to be animated. Well, thank you for that. Well, you know, and I've written preschool. Um, so I know, I do know what the difference is between writing for very young children. I mean, I, you know, I did, uh, JJ, I did 10 years of JJ, the jet plane on PBS. I developed it from scratch when it was, uh, when it was just, a, a, an idea that a, a fellow had, uh, in Texas and he had made a couple of little videos on his own. Anyway, I developed it and, and brought it to television and wrote over a hundred episodes and so I know how to write for kids. I know how to write for adults. I know how to write for tweens. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, and honestly, there's a lot of similarity. Everybody likes a good story. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, a good story is a good story. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, there was a lot of villains in the show. Um, and who was your favorite that you included? And also, what villains would you have liked to maybe had a go at uh, had you had more episodes? I did everything I wanted to do as far as villains were concerned and as far as stories were concerned. Um, probably my favorite villain was the Green Goblin and getting to bring Turning Point to life, which was a comic book that changed my life. Mm. Um, later, when uh, when Harry Osborn became the Green Goblin, getting to do that whole thing where he was still kind of 
in a kind of a schizophrenic way, hearing the voice of his father telling him what to do. Yeah. Uh, I loved all of that. Uh, I watched one episode. A very good friend of mine is Chris Cooper, an Academy Award-winning actor who is brilliant. And he had gotten the job of being Norman Osborn in the, um, in the most recent Spider-Man movies. And we were having a conversation. I, I don't talk to him very often, but somehow we, we happened to have a conversation right around that time. And he was asking about the character. And I re-watched one of uh, my episodes to recommend to him. But before I recommended it, I wanted to watch it first. Mm. And I sat and I watched it, and it was really, really good. And I was surprised at how good it was because it was an episode that I didn't even really remember. Yeah. Uh, but it was one, And it was one of the sort of Harry Osborn turning into the Green Goblin kind of episodes. Uh, and uh, I thought, nah, we really hit our lick with that one. Mm. So I would have to say it was the Green Goblin. And the advantage you had with the Green Goblin was that Norman Osborn was there from the start. So you, mm-hmm. know, you could see he wasn't a very nice guy to begin with. And then once he gets yeah. pushed off that edge, that's, uh, it's a lot better. Because in the comics, he was, um, you know, it was just, oh, who's this guy? You know, they, they introduced him a few issues earlier, and then suddenly he was the Green Goblin. Well, you know, one of the compliments that people will pay is they'll say, your, your show is just like the comic book, we love it. <laughs> And I'll always, I, that's high praise. The reality is my show is nothing like the comic book, but I would take elements from the comic book and I would rework them and I like to think I would make them better. Hmm. So that, you know, um, my favorite example is Morbius. Yeah. When I, you know, I loved Morbius when, when he was in the comic book and I went back to read the comic book to find out what his great origin was, <laughs> which I had forgotten at that time. <laughs> and the origin was... He's in a cave, and he wakes up, and he goes, hey, I'm awake. I think I'll kill some people. <laughs> I need blood. And that was his origin. Yeah. And I thought, what? <laughs> You're kidding. I mean, it doesn't get any dumber than that. Um, so I had to really work to figure out, if, okay, if I'm going to have him in the show, and I want him in the show, why is he in the show? You know. And it was the same with, with the whole Hobgoblin thing. It was sort of like, okay, well, if we're doing the Hobgoblin first... You know, I can have the Hobgoblin just suddenly appear, but why don't I integrate him a little bit better into the overall storyline? And that becomes um, the challenge, is is taking these, these comic book characters that have really not been thought out all that well and making them into a dramatic part of a, a you know, an organic part of a dramatic whole that will give them a little more weight when they do show up. So that, you know, by the time Norman Osborn, you know, was revealed as the Green Goblin, we really kind of got it. We were sort of like, oh, yeah, well, that's that's been building. By the time Eddie Brock became Venom and decided he wanted to kill Spider-Man, we already knew why he wanted to kill Spider-Man. It was, you know, it, it, had, been, uh, it had been built up. So that's my job. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, were, there were definitely a lot of good villains in the show. You know, everybody was kind of recognizable from the... It's particularly the Lee and Ditko days, you know, the kind of yes. the genesis of all these villains, the like Doc Ock and all those. So yeah. Well, that, that, was, that was what I owed to the fans. Somebody recently said something to me about what I owed to the fans. Well, what I owed to the fans on Spider-Man the Animated Series was that I needed to bring to life all of the major villains. You know, that's why I didn't invent anything new. I'd probably be a multimillionaire now if I had invented a new villain and it had gone on to become like Harley Quinn or something. Um, but I didn't because I thought, eh, people don't want to see some dumb villain I'm going to think of. They want to see the classic villains and they want, 
They want to see them brought to life the way they've never been brought to life. And I don't want to waste screen time, you know, inventing something new. Yeah. Um, you know, when I could be using that same screen time to bring Morbius to life, you know. So that's that's what I did for that's what I did for the fans. Somebody recently said, you know that Peter Finds Mary Jane thing that you're writing, you should just let that let everyone have that for free. <laughs> because because you owe it to the fans. And I thought, oh no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote back. I said, "I'm trying to get a, a, you know, something new done that we can all work on and and have a good time with, and that's why it's a perk, yeah. you know. I, I've already I've already done what I've done for the fans, which is to give them a good 65 half hour show. So my my obligation to the fans is fulfilled. Hmm. I'd definitely say so. Yeah, um, I, I do remember when the show ended. I was kind of too young to know when about." things getting renewed and so on so I just kept re-watching all the reruns on uh, a UK channel at the time called Fox Kids and hoping that mm-hmm. once they got to the last episode a new one would show up because that's the way it used to happen <laughs> but, uh, right. it didn't happen I'm very sorry about that <laughs> um, yeah I mean I, I was really at the end of the 65 I was tired and I perhaps wasn't having my kid audience in mind when I wrote the ending which was which was the ending that I wanted where, where Spider-Man in the in the Joseph Campbell monomyth, you know, yeah. proper story structure, Spider Man faces his creator and says, I'm not the person you created, I'm now I'm now better mm-hmm. than that. And I like myself. I don't have any insecurities anymore. I like myself. And he actually says that to Stan. He says, you know, I like myself. Yeah. Um, that's when the hero's journey is complete. And so I was very wrapped up in that. And I and I wasn't thinking in terms of little kids are going to want to see him get the girl. I should have been. But, you know, now here we are 20 years later and I have something that I can kind of build on. Yeah. Um, because I will, you will see him get the girl in, in, uh, in Peter. You will read <laughs> how he would have gotten the girl in Peter Finds Mary Jane. And I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm really going to try very hard to convince the cast to maybe just record it. Oh, well, you heard it here uh, first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Now, I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, and it'll have to be just a sheer, sheer labor of love kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to have them all in a booth. Hmm. And uh, let's see what happens. So uh, that's why people should donate to War of the Rocket Men, <laughs> is because you don't know what's going to happen. When I get them all in a booth and we're all good friends and we all like each other a whole lot, <laughs> there are all kinds of wonderful things might happen. So uh, 25 bucks, folks, that's all it's going to take. I, all your listeners go to www.waroftherocketmen.com, click the donate button, which will t- take you right to the Indiegogo campaign. And you don't even have to read all the stuff. Just pay $25. You're going to get a whole bunch of really cool stuff. And if a thousand of you out there are listening, how, how large is your listenership? Um, I don't know as yet. This podcast interview thing is, uh, is pretty new. So Pretty new? Well, if you have 13 people out there, <laughs> I want all 13 of them to, uh, to donate right away because it's really important. Let's hope 13 is not too ambitious a number. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your mother, Craig's mother, Mrs. Craig, I want you to donate. To War of the Rocket Men. I'll take whatever donation I could get. There okay, go. there Mom, you go. If you're listening, <laughs> off you go. <laughs> so yeah, um, probably taking uh, enough of your time as it is, but um, I have one sort of final standard question that I'll ask everyone, and it's quite appropriate considering the work that you do. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? 
Ah, okay. If I could have any superpower, um, I would like to have the ability to uh, see back in time. I actually fantasize about this. I don't need to go back in time, but I need to see back in time. Because if I could do that, then I could, I could tell you who shot JFK and who murdered Nicole Brown Simpson and who stole, you know, Joe Public's wallet um, and what happened behind the scenes when some political thing was going on. If I could do that, I could solve crimes, see, because the whole problem is that people tell lies and they hide things. And if I could look back into what really went on and solve things, then I think people would be put on notice that they can't get away with anything. Hmm. And the world would be, uh, it's just that one ability. If someone could invent a machine that could look back in time, then that one ability alone would change the world. People would, would be less inclined to be dishonest and to pull crap. Um, so that's, that would be, that's the one and only superpower that I would need, quite frankly. Hmm. Very altruistic ability. Well, I have to live in this world too, you know, <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's really, it's all about me, really. I'd like to live in a better world. I'd like to live in a world where, um, uh, you know, somebody can't say, say one thing and, and then lie about it and, and, and create a whole different reality. I, I think people creating their own reality in their heads is one of the biggest problems that faces us today. Um, because I've met a lot of people who are just very good at just simply reinventing what happened and, 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 and convincing themselves that that's the case. And I think that creates a lot of trouble. I would love there to be an absolute truth, an absolute undeniable truth so that people cannot fantasize anymore and make stuff up and lie and then present that as if it's some kind of truth. Um, I, I would love for there to be the ability to, to get at the absolute truth. So there you go. That's uh, it's a good power. Um, maybe one day you'll get it. Ah, uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thanks very very much for your time. It's been uh, it's been great hearing all your stories about the the various projects you've been involved in, and particularly Spider Man. Um, hopefully, anybody that listens to this will have a, a deeper insight into how that show came together. So just want to say thanks a lot for your time, and uh, it's been great talking to you. Well, Craig, thank you for having me on, and uh, thank your mom for listening. <laughs> and uh, I, I appreciate the invitation to come on and and uh, and talk about this and sell my show, my new show. And um, and I wish you all the best. Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So that was my interview with John Semper Jr. It was great to speak to the man responsible for so much of my childhood viewing, and I wish him all the success with his crowdfunding campaign. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed, and with any luck, there can be more interviews on Neil Before Blog in the near future.